The reality is many people are paying 50-60% of their salaries in rent. The number of people owning their own home in England has sunk to its lowest level for some 30 years. The government recognises the housing market is broken. It's just not working for so many people. It feels like we've heard this before from successive governments all tinkering around the edges. You can't build a house without land. We often talk about houses, who can buy, sell and rent them and how much they cost but we don't often talk about the land beneath them. Land in the UK is owned by all sorts of people, from individuals to charities to companies. But lots of it is owned by the government and local authorities. Public land. That's you and me, pals. But it's not our land for long. But there isn't a magic money tree that we can shake that suddenly provides for everything that people want. Lots of public land is being sold off, from old hospitals to sites owned by the Ministry of Defence. The government and local authorities say if they sell off this land, we can build houses on it to deal with the housing shortage. But is that really happening? Is selling off our public land really helping to solve the housing crisis? That question and more today on the Weekly Economics Podcast. My name's Aisha Thomas-Smith. Stay with us. So to help us get our head around land, we're welcoming back Alice Martin, finally, finally rejoining us after a long absence, who leads on the New Economics Foundation's housing work. So seeing as it's our topic today, Alice, what's your favourite mythical land? Um, I'm going to say Iceland. I know that that exists both as a shop and a country, (laughs) but um, I haven't ever been to the country and I'm looking forward to going to the shop more uh, because I'm becoming a mum and all mums love Iceland. That's why mums go to Iceland. Wow, full circle, lovely. So also with us is NEF researcher Duncan McCann, who's done a lot of work on our hot topic today of land. Same question, Duncan. Well, I'm going to go a bit like with Alice, because, you know, in some ways, truth is really stranger than fiction. And so my country is Singapore. And that's because in (laughs) Singapore, people privately cannot own land. So all land is owned by the state. And that just creates all these really interesting dynamics in the economy. So I'm a little bit obsessed with it at the moment. We're really playing it fast and loose with the word mythical. Please don't be offended, (laughs) any listeners. Singapore and Iceland are real. (laughs) We're also joined by a very special guest today, Dawn Foster, who's journalist for The Guardian, among other respected publications, and an expert on housing and land. Do you have a mythical land? I don't. Uh, unfortunately, I tend to read either non-fiction to think about how we can make our current land better, or I read non-fiction, which tends to lead more on dystopias. I think it's very, very hard to write utopia. I think it's very hard to write interestingly about a land where there are no problems, whereas obviously with dystopia, you're dealing with issues about how we, uh, fo- how we cope as humanity and all the terrible things that could go wrong. Okay. So we started this series the week of the terrible fire at Grenfell Tower in Kensington, West London. Um, It's been almost two months since the tragic events of that night and a lot has happened since. 
Dawn, you've spent a lot of time with residents in the area looking into and writing about how something as awful as Grenfell could have happened and what the response has been. So we thought we'd spend the first part of this episode just reflecting on what we know now, almost two months on, and what life has been like for local residents since the tragedy. So what are your thoughts, Dawn? Um, At the moment, it's still pretty grim for residents. Most of them are still in uh, hotels. Very, very few of them have taken up temporary accommodation, let alone permanent accommodation. At the same time, we've got lots and lots of different inquiries going on at the same time. So we have the police inquiry into, you know, the criminal investigation into who was culpable for it. And obviously that's taken a long time because I think one of the issues of Grenfell that makes it so complex is that there are so many failings. There are failings from the government in terms of the building legislation and the regulations that they scrapped. There are failings from the local authority in terms of exactly how they ended up outsourcing the running of the company to the tenant management organisation and the decisions they took to not properly fund everything. You've got tenant management organisation who didn't listen to residents' concerns. So I think it's an extraordinarily complex issue and it's you know I think it's a tragedy that tells us everything that's wrong with modern Britain because there are so many failings every step of the way. So at the moment it's still very complex. There's very, very few people who are in a good place, even in terms of housing, let alone mental health trauma. Mm. So Every day something new happens, every day people are re-traumatised, every day I'm getting phone calls from people who say they can't access the services they need or they don't even know what's going on. Could you just tell us a little bit more about how the, the work that you've been doing on the ground, the people that you've been meeting and any kind of, yeah... Yeah, I mean, I was one of the first things I did was assume that since this seemed to be a fire that was very unusual architecturally, something must have happened mm-hmm. around the building. So the first thing I did was... Google to see if there was a residence association, and of course there was. I found a blog that they'd written and um, just typed the word fire in to see if there had been previous fires. And what I found completely floored me, which was that rather than just people saying there'd been a few fires in the past, um, there was a blog post written in November that that had an image of a, a, a nearby tower block that, that was on fire. And it said that they felt that despite all of their complaints to the council, to the tenant management organisation, that they felt after years and years and years of complaints about safety, they felt as though the only thing that would make anybody listen to them would be a fire on a tragic and fatal Mm. level. And I shared it. And obviously the responses I got from people, I mean, most people were utterly utterly you know unbelieving at first when I spoke to residents it was just really shocking how many of them had been complaining for years felt completely and utterly ignored and a lot of it was uh, to do with class and a huge amount of it was to do with race Mm. Um, so ever since then I've been speaking to residents following what's been going on and just listening to the testimonies from people, from people who'd had to climb over their neighbours' bodies, from people who'd had to run out. You know, there was a woman who ran outside with her six kids. When she got to the ground floor and left, she only had four with her. Mm. And there were people who were still waiting for a funeral and still had no idea if they'd even get remains. And it's been harrowing for them. And the fact that it's been met with such utter kind of, um, you know, chaotic administration by the council and by the kind of people coming in to try and run services has just compounded all of that Mm. wow thanks so much for sharing that dawn and for all the good work that you've been doing so our big question today on the podcast is can selling off public land solve the housing crisis 
In the midst of a housing crisis, where affordable places to live are becoming harder and harder to come by, land is a very important commodity. Where the demand is greatest, particularly in cities across the country, local authorities and other public bodies have found themselves sitting on land that is soaring in value. As the government squeezes their funding, many local authorities think selling off that land will be the solution to their money problems. And with local residents struggling to buy or rent, flogging it to housing developers feels like killing two birds with one stone. So, is selling off public land in the middle of a housing crisis a good idea or not? And if we don't sell public land, what should we be doing with it? So, first of all, Duncan, what counts as public land and how much of it is there? Well, public land is really anything that's owned by either the central government, a local authority, or one of the many public bodies that we see, so the police, the fire, the NHS, uh, fire service, all own lots of land as well, as well as then the public corporations that we own. And although you would think that we should really know all the land that we own, it's actually quite hard to get to an exact figure of all of public land. But the best estimates means it sits at about 750,000 hectares, which, although a rather abstract number for most, represents 3% of the total land in the UK. Now, most of that land is really protected land. So more than 50% of that is our national parks, our sites of special interest. So not necessarily the things we should be thinking about with about developing or selling, but what we should really be protecting. And then about 10% of that are really remote sites. So the MOD has things out in the highlands and so on, which again, are not very useful for the purposes of a discussion today. We don't want to build huge housing villages, uh, huge cities out, in the, uh, out there. And then 4% is in a contested green belt. And that can maybe, you know, that would be an interesting provocation as to whether that should be part of our, of our housing solution. But that still leaves about 30% of this public land with real development potential. Um, and indeed, the analysis that I've done and others says that if, if you just take the, the top 5%, the most prime real estate, which sits either in cities or is peri-urban or suburban, uh, and built on that at like standard UK density, you in fact have enough space for 2 million homes, just on that 5% of public land that we already own. Okay, so how much of that land is being sold off? Well... Again, it's a difficult thing to measure because there aren't really consistent records of what the different public bodies and local authorities are doing. So we are in the midst of a government-led land sell-off at the moment. So this is uh, government advising departments to sell off any surplus land, any land that they deem to be surplus to their requirements. And the aim there is to sell enough land to build 160,000 new homes over five years. So it's around 5,000 hectares of land. Um, so that doesn't include what, what the local authorities themselves are selling. Um, this is just bodies like the Department of Health, Ministry of Defence, Ministry of Justice, Homes and Communities Agencies. And basically, there's an issue with it because it's, it's, it's not going to plan so far. It took them a long time to identify the land. And now that it's been identified, it's being sold off Quite slowly, or when it's being sold off, it's not being built on very quickly by developers. So we've actually worked out that it's running about 12 years late on it by the, the government's own standards. So it's not going to get to that figure of 160,000 new homes until 12 years after um, it wanted to, so 2032. And we've also found that a lot of the new homes being built on site aren't actually affordable for most people. So only one in five of the new homes built so far on land sold off are classed as affordable, and that's using the government's own measure of affordability, which, as many people will know, isn't really a great measure. It's based on 
what the local market says as opposed to what people's earnings and incomes actually are. So all in all, the, the, the land sell-off isn't, isn't really going very well at the moment. Okay, so if we own all this land and we also need more houses to be built, what are all the options? Um, Dawn, why has the government chosen to go with this one? I think the government's chosen to go with this one because they have an unyielding faith in the market. And I think that that is misguided for obvious reasons. It was a market that's really gotten into this mess. Um, part of the reason why the housing crisis is so kind of wide-reaching and why it's so entrenched and why there seems to be no way out of it is because we expect the market to somehow, you know, ready itself. So at the moment in London, obviously, you know, there are, there are houses being built, but they tend not to be family homes. They tend not to be what people really need. It tends to be what will make developers the most money. So if you sell off public land, all you're actually doing is allowing the market to continue this process, to continue to make what will make it the most money, not what is needed. So if you do sell it off, instead of actually keeping it in local authorities, keeping it in government control, then you're just going to entrench the housing crisis further. What they should be doing is keeping hold of it, but also requisitioning land that isn't being used. So stopping land banking, stopping developers from buying land, you know, applying for planning permission, then doing nothing with it, and actually get actually enabling local authorities to build what is needed. And that will help house prices, you know, on a whole, but it will also mean that people will be housed properly and we can look long term into what we need in the housing market. I mean, the government talk extensively about um, home building targets, but they never talk about what tenure we need. They never talk about what type of houses we need. And there's never any real thought to geography. So obviously, I mean, I grew up in South Wales. There are lots of family homes there in the valleys and in South Wales where I grew up. What they, you know, in Wales, you need a lot of kind of small one bed properties that are um, affordable for young people who often don't earn very much. And instead, very little is being built at all. Um, there are a lot of people who really want to downsize, but are instead stuck with the bedroom tax. And then you go up to Liverpool, there are a lot of empty homes there. And, you know, if you you can't just have a home building target for the entire nation and then plonk a load of luxury apartments in London that nobody will live in. You need to actually look at look at where you need land. So obviously in London there is, you know, London isn't actually that dense considering how many, um, you know, considering how many people live here. Um, there is plenty of room to build the homes that people need in London and to keep people in London. And instead we're shipping them off to Birmingham, we're shipping them off to Hastings. I mean, earlier this week I spoke to seven women who were being kicked out of their uh, domestic violence refuge because the ceiling caved in and they were being offered places in Sussex, they were being offered places in Essex, they were being offered places in Barking when they wanted to stay where their kids' schools were, they wanted to stay where the GP surgery was in Kensington and instead in Kensington we have lots of empty homes, I think it's 1,600 you know, some of some of them are owned by Russian oligarchs and, you know, kind of sheikhs who have no interest in ever living there. So I think we need to look at where we need homes and we need to look at what kind of homes we need. And if you leave it to the market, that simply isn't going to happen. So Alice, Dawn mentioned a few examples of uh, specific areas that we could be improving there. Um, do you have any specific examples of where public land is being sold off that you think is a problem? Yeah, I mean, um, parts of hospital sites 
I find a, a particularly stark example of, of where this is a real false economy. We know that at the moment there is a cost of living crisis and that is affecting key workers in particular. So, so hospital staff, nurses need to be able to afford to live near where they work. So it would be sensible, I would have thought, that if you had surplus land on a hospital site, if you decided a particular part of a building was no longer needed and you were going to modernise elsewhere, why then sell that 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 scrap of land off to a private developer where you have very little control then over what they're going to build on it. Another option would be for the Department of Health to hang on to that land or for them to give it to the local authority and then actually have genuinely affordable housing built on site so that those key workers, um, those nurses, could live there next to where they work. There are examples of this in London. We've talked about one on on a previous podcast, which is the St Anne's Hospital site in in North London, Mm. where there's actually a community-led project bidding to build affordable community-led housing on site. And they're in negotiations at the moment with the Department of Health and, and various others over that. I think another area of concern about the set-off is really is really our parks. Mm-hmm. So it's an area where uh, government is not forced to fund them. And what we're seeing is at the moment, over 50% of local authorities looking to either sell them to private developers, uh, buyers, or just offload the management of them to other organisations. And, you know, I think it's really integral to the kind of livability of our cities that we do maintain these green spaces inside it. And uh, yeah, so this this privatisation of our parks, I think, is also is problematic. Yeah, I mean, I live in uh, Lambeth, so I live near Clapham, and we have a big park near me. And the council gave it over to a small, you know, a small residence association to run, but they didn't give many funding for it. So very, very quickly, they realised that they needed some money for the upkeep of the park. And surprise, surprise, the solution they were given was to sell off part of the land to build flats on. So we're slowly but surely having our park eaten up because they haven't been given money to fund it. The only way, the only way for them to actually continue is either to charge people to use it as they do in neighbouring Wandsworth for the park in Battersea where kids have to play I think five pounds to go on you know the swings and that sort of thing (laughs) or you can do what Lambeth are now doing with Larkhall Park which is sell off part of the land to build houses and obviously that will eventually continue until we have no park. Mm. Wow so with that that in mind Duncan what would you do with the land instead and if you had to make a prediction what do you think will happen? Well, I mean, I think the first thing, and it's kind of been mentioned a few times, is really we should really be focusing on retaining this public land. Um, I think that's what's that's what's really critical. Um, Now, some people who are you know worried about maybe you know um, uh, banning any selling, we could look at some more of a crown estate model. So the crown estate manages some of the crown's property, and what they have is not a ban on selling, but they have to maintain kind of the value of their. Uh, portfolio so they could sell one bit to buy another bit which might be more strategic so that you know but something we've got to retain this asset that's so valuable to us and there are some really some quite interesting solutions kind of uh, going on so there's this innovative kind of solution called place partnership up in Worcestershire um, and it's it's six public bodies who have got together to kind of pool their land in a mutual company so it's a it's a fire authority it's two police forces a city council a county council and a borough council which have pooled their land together, uh, not so that they can then sell it off, but first of all, so they can improve services by co-locating some of the things that make sense. That can then release uh, excess uh, buildings and land, uh, which they can then, they don't sell, but they use to generate an income, either by renting it out or by leasing it. Uh, And then they also get efficiencies and savings by uh, reducing kind of the, the management costs of the buildings. 
And so I think we could really see that happening uh, in a lot of places across the country. And that doesn't require any government legislation or initiative. It's just local public bodies uh, kind of taking initiative of themselves. At a larger scale, I think what we really need to replicate is a kind of what, what, I'm, what I call a city or a regional wealth fund, which is where all public land, either within a city or where there's no major city within a region, uh, would be pulled together in similar way to what we've talked about with the place partnerships. And again, not so that we can then release land or release property to be sold, but so that we can really uh, co-locate services, which can improve service delivery, uh, drive down cost of managing this public estate, which is considerable. And then, and more importantly, in, this, in an era of constrained funding at all levels, it, it generates a kind of stable income stream for these areas. Okay, so we've got a few options. Thanks, Duncan. I feel better. So, <laughs> Dawn, if local authorities are selling off land because they've got no money, like you were mentioning with the park, can they afford to be building housing? I think you have to look at it in a long-term uh, frame of mind. So I think a lot of councils will look at the value of some of the land they hold. You know, and, and some in some councils, it's not just a case of thinking we have vacant land, we can sell this, it's worth a lot of money. It's looking at the land that some of their existing housing stock stands on and thinking, could we demolish it, build something new there and get, get some more money out of it. But the problem with that is that once you is that you can only sell land once. So if you think in the interim that you'd sell, you know, the land that the council sits on, turf out all the residents, you know, get lend lease in to buy that land, that's it. So you've got the money from it, but then that's it. Whereas what you could do instead, and I think the government should look into actually allowing councils, you know, not just funding them to build housing, but also allowing them to borrow. You know, we're constantly told that the economy is like a household budget when that's clearly not the case. The government can borrow very, very, very cheaply, give it to councils who want it. And then instead of selling off the land, what they can do is build council housing on it. And council housing is brilliant for many, many reasons. But one of the great reasons is that it genuinely pays for itself. So you build a house, people pay rent, and you get that rent over and over and over again. So eventually you're making a profit from this, not just because you're no longer having to fund extraordinarily expensive homelessness services where, I mean, I think I, I, I recently looked at an example where it was costing the council about... £3,000 a month to house a family in one bedroom and temporary accommodation wow. whereas you build a house you put them in it and very very quickly it pays for itself so you know you can sell it off in the short term but if councils were allowed to borrow more and actually build houses then they could build up a great revenue stream very very quickly it only takes a few years to pay the housing off and you're housing people properly securely you're really cutting down the services they need and you're also making a profit and it goes straight back into the into public services and then it's spent over and over again so i think we need to be able to let local, local authorities borrow borrow cheaply build their own land instead of selling it off and finding that they have very very few assets down the line yeah and we've in fact created kind of artificial barriers to exactly what dawn's saying and that's the treasury's real insistence mm. on this idea of public sector net debt which basically is a is a total of all of your debt on one side of this on one side of the, the equation mm. uh, and on the other side rather than counting all of your assets it only counts what are called liquid assets which are basically cash and things you can convert into cash really really easily so that produces the perverse uh, kind of scenario whereby you borrow to build a house and that all that debt counts on your debt side of the equation but you get nothing on your asset side, even though what you have, as Dawn so well explained, is you have a long-term income-generating asset that will generate a profit because you have a full, steady income stream from it. 
And there are plenty of other systems of accounting or ways of adding up which allow you to account for that asset that you've created as a not only having value in itself because it's bricks and mortar and it sits on land, but also a value because it brings in that long-term stable uh, income stream. So we've kind of created our own barrier to being able to do exactly what Dawn's saying. And then on top of that, you now have the government rule that um, as soon as high value council housing becomes vacant, they have to sell it off. Mm. And those receipts don't go back to the council, they go straight to the Treasury. So we're actually impoverishing councils. So, you know, if I mean, most of the high value council housing is in London, where there is a pressing need for it. And so if, say, Kensington and Chelsea sell off um, one of the you know big council houses they have that will get one million pounds, that isn't given back to Kensington and Chelsea to build uh, you know, a couple of houses. It's given straight to the Treasury and then Kensington and Chelsea lose that income stream. OK, so we've been talking a lot about public land on this episode, um, but to be honest, private land ownership is where it's all at. That's what the cool kids are talking about. Word on the street. <laughs> so, so much land is owned by so few very interesting characters and companies in this country. What do you guys think are the most interesting examples of that? I'd have to say down in Cornwall, where a lot of the land is owned by Prince Charles. And and I was there recently actually camping and I wild camped on a bit of Prince Charles's land, which felt Mm, great. Look (laughs) at you. Wild child. Duncan, what what have you got? Well, I think it's really interesting. Um, I was doing some research today on the water utility. So in the same time as we privatised an industry that probably should never have been privatised for a whole variety of reasons... As we privatise this industry that shouldn't have, we also happen to privatise 1% of all of the land of the UK, so, which, is, which is what the, the utilities kind of own as an, as an aggregate. And so I think it just shows one of those stories about where privatisation is one about an industry and about an income stream, but a lot of it is also underlying this idea of privatising land and grabbing land and, and the, how those two stories kind of go together. Wow, depressing. Dawn. <laughs> so I looked into how much land the Queen owns, and she owns uh, oh 8,093 8, hectares. But she doesn't own as much as uh, vacuum cleaner entrepreneur <laughs> James Dyson. So oh he God. owns 10,117 hectares, so you know a lot more than the Queen. Oh. And it's the equivalent of, uh, I hate to be a cliche, but 14,000 football pitches. <laughs> wow. <laughs> J- James Dyson was James it? Dyson I'll look him up get him on <laughs> Tinder alright so thanks for being on the podcast again Alice and great to have you Duncan uh, and Dawn if people want to hear more from you or read your stuff where can they do that? Um, I write I write a column for The Guardian so one week I'll write about housing the next week I'll write about anything I want it's normally miserable it's normally about social affairs it's normally about everything that's wrong with Britain perfect um, right at home <laughs> I've written a book called Lean Out about feminism and austerity that's out already and I'm currently writing, just finishing one about the housing crisis called Where Will We Live? And then I'm writing one about Grenfell Tower. So find me in your local library. Okay, great. <laughs> so somewhere down the line, yeah. there'll be something about rainbows and bunnies. Maybe oh, in absolutely. I can't wait. <laughs> great. <laughs> Amazing. Um, so thanks always to, uh, as always, the listeners for joining us um, and to my wonderful panel of wonks um if you've enjoyed this episode please do think about leaving us a rating or a review in the apple podcast app it only takes a minute and it helps bump us up the charts uh, which helps other people discover the show too make sure that you've subscribed to the weekly economics podcast in the app of your choice to get new episodes every week and if you've got a question you'd like us to answer you can tweet us at weekly econ pod 
The Weekly Economics Podcast is produced by James Shield and Hugh Jordan and brought to you by the New Economics Foundation. We'll be taking a wee break, but we'll be back with you soon. <laughs>